The sermon text this morning is from Luke 19, verses 28 through 44, and I'll be reading from the ESV. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. <clears throat> if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount, the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to them, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that, that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we've heard your word read. May it come alive to us and arrest our imaginations and stir our hearts. And may we respond in a way that brings glory to your name. We ask this, Father, Son, Spirit. May you come to us now through your word. Amen. I grew up in a family that overdressed for everything. Uh, that was my mom grew up in a suburb of New York City. That was the culture she grew up in. Her dad wore a suit and tie every night for dinner. And so every church event, every school event, every social event, we were the most dressed in the room. I was that kid in elementary school spelling bees. When every other kid is wearing shorts and a t-shirt, I'm wearing a tie because that's, that's how my family worked. And it was drilled into me, it is always better to be overdressed than underdressed. If you're going to have to make a mistake, be on the overdressed side, not on the underdressed. And the worst thing that can happen to you is to be the most underdressed person in a room. That's just game over, go home. Well, when Mark and I lived in San Antonio, we had a funeral we had to go to. And this was a funeral that was in June. It was outside San Antonio in June. Could be in the 90s, could be hotter than that. And so I hear funeral, and I think, okay, I'm wearing a dark suit. That's what you wear to funerals. And Marco tells me, Mike, Mike, no, 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 no. This is San Antonio. This is not the Northeast. People are much more casual down here, and it's outside. No one is going to be wearing a suit. Do not wear one. Dress more casually, or you will be miserable. And so somehow Marco convinced me to wear shorts and a polo to this 
funeral. And lo and behold, when we arrive, every man there is wearing a suit and tie and looks like they're ready for a funeral, except this bozo who looks like he's ready for a golf outing. And I was mortified. It was my nightmare come true. I was the least dressed by a long ways of anyone at this funeral. Now, the point of that, besides being kind of a, a funny story, is that we misjudged how to prepare for that event. We misjudged how formal this funeral was going to be. We misjudged how we should dress ourselves. We just misunderstood it. Now, it was just a, a clothing mistake. It wasn't a big deal. It was just a social faux pas. I guarantee you I was the most bothered by what I was wearing at that funeral than anybody else. But if we misjudge things that are more serious, they can have more serious consequences. So, for instance, if you get a subpoena in the mail requiring you to testify in a court hearing, and you misjudge that as a friendly suggestion by the judge and decide to ignore it, it could cost you a hefty fine or even jail time. Unlikely, but possible. The consequences are more serious. And likewise, if we misjudge the things of God, the consequences can be eternal. Now, we're looking at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem today, which is important for a whole host of reasons. For one, he begins to make more explicit claims of messiahship. Before, he's always been kind of circumspect, letting people think what they want by not coming forth. But here, he seems to be making some pretty clear statements about his messiahhood. It's also a clear turn in the Gospel of Luke in terms of its story structure. But the people misjudge the nature of the event. They misjudge what Jesus is coming to do in his ministry, and as a result, they, re- they respond in the wrong way. And this is a foreshadowing of how the Passion Week is going to go, as the people misunderstand, misjudge the nature of what Jesus has come to do, and they continue to respond in the wrong way all the way up until they crucify the Lord of glory. So the outline for this morning is that first point, is that the king has come. The second is that he is the king of peace. And the third point is going to be the right way to respond. Now just again, some context of where we are. Entering Jerusalem is a turning point in the Gospel of Luke. Um, we, it, it, if you kind of figure out the clues, it seems pretty clear that Jesus entering Jerusalem is entering on a Sunday, and then he is crucified on Friday. So everything between now and chapter 22 covers just four days. And so the pace of the story picks up. you got to think from chapters 2 to 19, that's three years, and now in the space of two chapters, we're just covering four days. Things pick up very quickly. And, and, and we're looking at actually two different stories, which you probably noticed uh, when Courtney read it, but verses 28 to 40 is one story, verses 41 to 44 is a, is a different story. But it's so obvious that Luke has put these next to each other, and they're playing off each other, and they're related and contrasting in very obvious ways. I'm going to keep them together, and hopefully it'll make sense. But I want to explain the scene again. Um, you probably picked this up as you were reading, but Jesus is about one or two miles outside of Jerusalem. Now, uh, the Mount of Olives was, an, was a mountain range that went north to south. And so he's coming down the mountain, and Jerusalem is down below. And so you're, you're looking out over Jerusalem. Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead of him to get a colt, probably a young donkey. They bring it to Jesus. Jesus gets on this colt, rides into Jerusalem, and people go bananas. And the question is, what is going on? 
Why are people throwing, you know, jumping up and down, dancing? It says in, in Matthew they had palm leaves. Like, what is going on here? And there's an Old Testament image, an Old Testament prophecy that's behind this that's helpful for us to understand why people react the way they do and what Jesus is saying about himself as he comes into Jerusalem. And this is taken from the prophet Zechariah. Now, Zechariah prophesied after the Israel exile. So again, Israel is sent into exile by Babylon for 70 years. When they come back, the land is destroyed. Jerusalem is leveled. The temple has been burned to the ground. And they're trying to rebuild. And they're specifically trying to rebuild the temple. And Zechariah prophesies to those returning exiles to encourage them in this role. And at one point, Zechariah says this in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah tells Israel, there's going to come a king. He's going to restore Israel. He's going to restore you to your former splendor. He's going to bring salvation. And, and, and the sign is that he'll be riding a colt. And then here comes Jesus, who's, stir, who's caused quite a stir, right? He's been, he's been healing people. He's been doing all kinds of wonders and miracles. In, in fact, the Gospel of John, the, uh, the Apostle John lets us know that um, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead right before this. And even mentions that one of the reasons there was such a crowd around Jesus is people had seen this and want to see what's going to happen next. And then lo and behold, here comes Jesus riding on a colt. It's the deepest, it's, it's, it's the greatest hope of the people of Israel, the king, the Messiah, the one who would save them. And here he is. And so people go bananas. But of course, the, the Jews, they're looking for someone who'd come like King David, who would who would save them from their political enemies, who would overthrow the Roman Empire, who would come into Jerusalem to take his throne. But Jesus has been at pains to prepare his disciples for the fact that he was not coming for a throne, he was coming to die on a cross, who was not coming to be a political conqueror, but to die for the sins of people. So why is Jesus kind of encouraging this, this, this exaltation that the king has come? Why is he kind of playing to what's a clearly a misunderstanding of who he is? Because if you look at him, I mean, Jesus knows what he's doing. He sends his, his, I mean, this is the word of life. Like, right, he is the Bible incarnate. He knows this prophecy. He sends his disciples to get a cult. He knows what people will think. So why is he doing that? Well, the first reason is because Jesus really is the Messiah, the Jews misunderstood what the Messiah was coming to do. They misunderstood the phases of the kingdom of God. But at the end of the day, this really is the Son of God coming into Jerusalem. It really is the king who is coming to his own. And as Jesus says, look, if the people didn't shout aloud, the very stones would cry out at the coming of the Lord of life, who has finally come to put an end to death and sin forever. He is the Messiah. And they may misunderstand what the Messiah is coming to do, but he's like, look, in one sense... This is how you respond when the king comes. That's why Jesus encourages it. But second, Jesus is showing that even though he is coming to die, he is still the sovereign king. 
Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem, try to be king, and then was killed. That's how kind of a sociologist of history would write the story. And then the disciples kind of made it all up afterwards. No, Jesus came fully in control. He sends his disciples knowing where the cults are going to be, or sorry, knowing where the cult is. He, you talk to this guy, you'll get a cult, you'll get a young donkey. Jesus has planned all this out. Nothing is happening against his permission, against his will. He's planned it all out. And as we go through the Passion Week, things begin to get tense, and then they get outright chaotic. And it seems like everything is falling apart. But Jesus is letting his disciples know, no, I am in control. I've planned this out. I am still the sovereign king, even though I have come to lay down my life rather than claim the throne. The king has, in fact, come. It's the first point. But he isn't the kind of king that the Jews expected. So the question becomes logically, okay, what kind of king is he? And this brings us to our second point, which is that he is the king of peace. Now, there are clues in our text that he is the king of peace, or at least that he's not the king they think he is. And the first is, what is he riding on? A donkey. How many war movies have you seen where the conquering king rides in on a donkey? Other than Shrek, okay? And that is like made to be ironic, okay? When you're, when, you're, when you're trying to be a conquering lord and you're trying to exude power and, and, and strength and, and, you know, courage, like you ride a mighty steed where you're drawn by a great chariot, a donkey makes you think of domestic duties, farm work. When, it, when Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, it's a symbol of peace, of just the mundane life you can live when you're not under siege in warfare, when you can attend to your crops because you're not off fighting people. It's, it's the man sitting down under his fig tree at peace watching his children play. That's the image of a donkey. That's the first clue that this Jesus is not coming in to, to, to cause a bloody revolution. He's riding a donkey. But then verse 38, the people themselves, even though they don't know what they're confessing, confess what Jesus has come to do. When they're crying out, they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're actually quoting Psalm 118. But then they add their own commentary. And they say, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Exactly. Christ has come to bring peace in heaven. Granted, they don't really know what that means. He's the peace, he's the king of peace. But then lastly, when Jesus, in the next story, when he weeps over Jerusalem, he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. This is the king of peace. He's not coming to bring warfare, to bring revolution. He's come to bring peace. But again, the logical question is, what is peace? What does that even mean? To say that he's the king of peace. Well, if you look in most dictionaries, there'll be at least two definitions of peace, if not many more. And the first one is this. It's freedom from disturbance, tranquility. It's that feeling of inner peace. And in our culture, when we use the word peace, this is what we're referring to 99.9% of the times. If you do a Google search, does Google need peace? It'll all be inner peace. It'll be everything from um, uh, uh, Oprah Winfrey you know, writing articles on inner peace to like Bible verses on finding inner peace. You know, we're an incredibly anxious age. We're overwhelmed with the information that are at our fingertips in a smartphone. We don't know how to handle it all. We're constantly connected to everything and it's driving us crazy. 
And so we, we, we long for a subjective feeling of tranquility, for peace and harmony, and we'll do whatever it takes to get it. And we'll judge worldviews and beliefs based on whether it gives me inner peace. To such an extent that we don't even care if it's true or not, right? Like how many have you heard something along the lines of, that's great. If it gives you peace, it's great. They're saying like, as long as it brings you inner peace, a feeling of subjective tranquility, that's all that matters. But according to the Bible, that isn't the kind of peace that we need most. And the second definition of peace that you'll find in most dictionaries is this. A state or period in which there is no war, or a war has just ended. When the Bible uses the word peace almost every time, this is the kind of peace it's referring to. It's not referring to just a subjective sense of well-being, but it's referring to a cessation of hostilities, specifically between us and God. Because what we need most of all is peace with God. The way the Bible teaches it is, is, is not that, you know, we as a human race, we've just kind of had a falling out with God, or there's been a misunderstanding, or we've lacked intentionality. Or... It's that we are at open warfare with the creator of the universe. We are at war with God. He is our enemy, and we are his enemies. Because we've rebelled against him, we've rejected him, we've despised him in our hearts, we've hated him. If we could, we'd kill him. That's the state of humanity with God. And if that's true, if we're at war with God, what good is inner peace? I don't know if any of you are following the story of Ukraine. You should be. It's, it's, it's a really big deal. But right now, Russia is mobilized on the northern eastern border of Ukraine. Over 100,000 troops, tanks, artillery, enough to, to, to completely invade and take over Ukraine. And what's been interesting is, is as this kind of came to light earlier this week or maybe a week ago, um, Western reporters started going into Ukraine to, to report on this. And there are villages that are just a couple miles in from the border, like a couple miles away from thousands of Russian troops who are mobilizing. And they go into these villages, and people are just going about their life, going to work, walking their dogs, going on date nights. And they're just, in these Western reporters, just like flummoxed, like, there is death and carnage a couple miles away. What are you doing? And the Ukrainians are like, look, we've been under threat of invasion for 10 years. There's nothing we can do about it. At some point, you've got to live your life. And I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Like, if you're in that situation, it's not like I can go to Vladimir Putin and be like, hey, man, can we talk this out? Like, there's nothing you can do. If it's going to come, it's going to come. Live your life. I get that. But imagine if there was something that that village people could do. Imagine if there was some way they could sue for peace. They could, they could make peace with the Russians and avoid an invasion. But yet they decided not to, and they just focused on having inner peace. That would be a very different picture. It would be absurd. It would be tragic. Who cares about inner peace when there is literally thousands of soldiers who are massing a couple miles away who are going to slaughter you all potentially, who are going to bombard your village? Who cares if you feel good about yourself? Like, you got to do something about that. At the end of the day, the Christian gospel is not come find inner peace. Inner peace without peace with God is a delusion. It means nothing. Rather, the the Christian gospel is come have peace with God. And even more than that, the good news of Christianity is not just that you can have peace with God, but that God has, God has come to us 
and has actually asked us for peace. We who have rebelled against him, who have sinned against him, who have been the, the bad actors in this game, God has come to us saying, I want peace with you, and I'm willing to make peace with you. That's the good news of Christianity. Only we will lay down our weapons and join him. The Christian gospel is that we can have peace with God, but I, I tell you what, the Christian gospel is not that we can have inner peace. That's not the good news. The good news is that we can have peace with God, but it brings inner peace that is unshakable. If our sense of well-being and inner peace is just a subjective feeling that we kind of stir up, it's kind of fragile. I have been told that a good yoga session can make you feel very relaxed and at peace. I have been told. I will never, if, look, if I have an hour, I don't want to spend it stretching, okay? It's just my personal preference. But I've been told, right? Or if you have a good meal, that can make you feel very at peace. Or spend time with your friends, and I can have a feeling of well-being and peace. But if inner peace is just based on manipulating our psyche and our physiology, it's, it's fragile. It's just waiting for one bad accident. But the peace with God provides an objective grounding to our inner peace. When we have peace with God, it doesn't mean just that we have a ceasefire and God's like, I won't crush you and you leave me alone. When God makes peace with us, he invites us into his kingdom, into his family. And now the God of the universe, the creator of all things, who, who lives in glory, whose, whose power knows no end, now he's our father. And he's told us, I, I now will care for you and I will protect you and I will, I will draw near to you and give you what you need. Peace with God is an objective grounding that gives us inner peace that nothing can touch. Job changes, life circumstance, physical pain. None of these can take away the fact that we have peace with God and he has promised that he will now watch over us as a father watches over his children. So yes, the gospel is not that we will have inner peace, but it certainly brings inner peace. And this is the king of peace who came to bring us peace with God. If Jesus is the king of peace, who came to bring us peace with God, what would have been the right way for Israel to respond as Jesus is entering Jerusalem? What's the right way for us to respond as, as the king of peace comes to each one of us and says, I've come to make peace with you and God? This brings us to our, our third and final point, the right way to respond and here we're going to look at the second story in verses 41 to 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Again, this is clearly a distinct story from the triumphal entry, but it's so obviously contrasting. And what it's saying is, when Israel welcomed their king, they misjudged what Jesus was coming to do. They misjudged that he was coming to give them peace with God because they didn't understand their status with God. They thought they were already at peace with God. And so Jesus was going to give them peace with their enemies. And because they misjudged what Christ was coming to do, they also responded in the wrong way. 
They rejoiced when instead Jesus shows them how they should have responded, which is with weeping and repentance. But let's see, why does Jesus weep here? It's because Jesus sees what's coming, okay? Again, picture the scene. He's, he's riding down on a colt. He's coming down the hills. Jerusalem is splayed out. And at this time, Jerusalem would have been a very impressive city. The temple covered 30 acres. It was far more impressive than Solomon's temple. King Herod was, was a brutal, terrible man, but he was an amazing administrator, amazing builder, and he put in decades of work, and it was a splendor of the world. And there would have been the great walls that surrounded the city that kept out the Roman legions for three years. And then all the palaces and the great estates and the noble buildings, it would have been a, a very impressive city. But when Jesus sees a city, he doesn't see Jerusalem. He sees the smoking ruins that will come to be. And so he weeps. And he tells them just three different things he says. He says, first, in verse 43, there will be enemies who will surround you and there will be no way out. You will be trapped. There will be no chance of escape. Second, they're going to tear you to the ground, you and your children. It's the image of dashing something on the floor like pottery. It's going to be slaughter, bloodbath. And lastly, every stone will be torn down. There won't be one building left. It's complete destruction. And that's exactly what happened in 70 AD when the Roman legions came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And we actually have extra biblical witness to what that was like. There was a Jewish historian named Josephus who was in Jerusalem and witnessed it firsthand. And the way he describes it is like this. He says, while the sanctuary was burning... Neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike, were massacred. And this is what Jesus sees as he comes down the mountain. This is, this is what he's picturing for Jerusalem, and so he weeps. And the reason this is coming on Jerusalem is given us in verse 44. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because the Jews misjudged the time when God visited them in his son, Jesus Christ. They didn't understand. They misjudged it. Now, to understand why the significance of this statement that you did not know the time of your visitation, Jesus is using a specific word for time there that is more nuanced than how we might think of time. When we say, what is the time? It's 3 p.m., that is the time. The Greek word is kairos for my Bible nerds out there, but it refers to a specific amount of time given over to a specific purpose. So if you take a test, if you're a college student, seminary student, remember back to when you were a student, say your professor or teacher says you have 60 minutes to take this test. That's your kairos, your time for the test. When that 60 minutes is up, it doesn't matter if you're, if, if you're not done. It doesn't matter, you're done. The opportunity's over. If, if an hour after the test, you realize you got an answer wrong, too late, it's over. That was your kairos, your time for that event. And what Jesus is saying is he's been ministering for three years in the countryside, in the city, in the villages, preaching to whoever will hear, healing the sick, casting out demons. There has been opportunities, there has been a kairos, a specific time for people to respond, and that time is now coming to an end rapidly coming to an end, after which there will no longer be an option to respond. And Jesus is foreseeing that the people will not respond to him, and what will come upon Jerusalem as judgment will be destruction. 
The time for response is coming to a close. Israel doesn't respond right, but how should they have responded? What would have been the correct response to the coming king of peace, coming to, to, to die for his people? Well, they responded with joy and exaltation, but as I've already said, the right response would have been with weeping and with repentance. Because they did not realize that Jesus came to bring them peace with God. Think of it this way. This is an analogy that might help us understand why instead of jumping up and down and celebrating, they should have been weeping with Jesus. In 2006, my uh, home in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, made national headline news. You probably remember this if you were somewhat cognizant of that time. Um, But uh, a 32-year-old man went into a one-room Amish schoolhouse and shot 10 school-age girls and killed five of them. And, uh, and then killed himself. And, and so no one knew why he did it. It was a, it was a brutal, brutal, violent act. Uh, and so again, you, probably, you might remember it. But it, was just, it was very strange. I was in college. It was very strange to hear my home. I mean, it wasn't my hometown, but it was 10 minutes away from where I grew up. Very strange to hear in the headlines. But what also made headlines was how that Amish community responded. Now, within Amish communities, obviously, they're very tight-knit because they have this like, deep sense of being separated from the world. And so your Amish community is your life. That couple hundred of people, like that's, that's, that's it. And so this community, people who you know, knew every girl who'd been shot, that these were parents and sisters and cousins of the girls who'd been killed. What made headlines was how they responded to the family of the killer. Because he left behind three kids and a wife and parents. And there were reports that, that, that members from the Amish community were at the family's house hours after the killing, offering them forgiveness and comfort. Over 30 Amish members attended the man's funeral, the man who had shot and killed their daughters and their loved ones. If you're the family, right, if you're the wife of the man who shot those kids, if you're, if you're the parents... How do you respond when, when, when the parents and the friends and the loved ones of these children come to you and say, I forgive you. I don't hold against you. Do you go, yes, I knew it. Woo! I feel relieved. Yes. That's what Israel's doing as they're celebrating the coming of Jesus. And that's why it's so inappropriate and they so miss the boat. How do you respond? You weep. There's a story of of an Amish man who held this killer's father for an hour as he wept on his shoulder because he's broken by this people whom your family has wronged irreparably and they're just forgiving you so fully. It's breaking. All you can do is weep. And the king of peace came to Jerusalem to those who had offended a holy God, to those who had, who had sinned against a holy God and came not, not exacting justice, but coming and offering unconditional forgiveness. The response ought to have been weeping before the mercy and the grace of God. And that's why the good news of Christianity, it will always bring repentance. You know, me standing up here and saying, you guys are a bunch of sinners, that's not going to bring Repentance. What brings repentance is when we know we're sinners and God's mercy 
comes to us still, and the beauty and the goodness of God comes to us who don't deserve it. That's what breaks us beyond repair. The good news of Christianity always brings repentance when it's actually understood, when we understand what we have done against God, and yet he still comes to us, and he is the one who is seeking peace with us. The people of Israel misjudged the coming of Jesus, and so they responded in the wrong way. They rejoiced when they should have wept because they didn't understand the peace that they really needed. What they needed most of anything is peace with God. It doesn't matter It doesn't matter how good we feel about our lives. It doesn't matter how happy we are. It doesn't matter how much tranquility we have. If we don't have peace with God, it is is the opiate of the masses. To misquote Karl Marx, it is a delusion. And so if we have nothing else, even if it costs us our lives, if it costs us our inner peace, if it costs us suffering, we must have peace with God, if nothing else. We must seek that, if nothing else. We find it in his son Jesus who offers it to us willingly. Let's pray. Jesus, you came to sinners like us who were in war against the God who made us, who were without hope. And you sued us for peace. You petitioned us for peace. We don't we can't make sense of this. It doesn't make sense in our categories. We don't. Grace is beyond our understanding. May you break us down and rebuild us on the foundation of your grace and your mercy. Holy Father, do this the work of your blessed Son, Jesus, and your Holy Spirit. Amen.